everyone, and welcome to episode 29 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. I am Sarah Jaffe. I am here once again with Michelle Chen. And uh, as always, we start off with a little bit of a news roundup. Michelle, what have you been watching this week? Uh, well, I think I've been celebrating Halloween with everyone else. Uh, and um, it's as we record this, um, people are getting ready for trick-or-treat, um, getting their costumes ready for tonight. But there are real-life horrors unfolding south of the border, I'm sorry to say, at a candy factory in Ciudad Juarez, which is just over the border. And the Dulce's Blueberry Maquiladora, which is a low-wage manufacturing plant that creates, um, you know, masses of candy for American consumers, including the famous uh, Halloween sort of confections known as Real Annoying Orange and the Plants vs. Zombies gummies. Unfortunately, the the factory itself has turned into a bit of a Walking Dead sort of um, horror show because there was an industrial explosion there a few days ago that ended up killing four workers, that's the death toll so far, injuring several dozens more and basically blasting the entire area with a cloud of dust. And uh, the really sad part is that the tragedy continues to unfold because the government investigation that is supposed to be taking place has sort of hobbled along. The emergency response really underscored the complete lack of infrastructure in the area to take care of these injured workers. And the factories actually had a history of both labor disputes and workplace safety issues. There have been accidents there before in the past few years. So I just thought this tragedy obviously comes on the eve of a holiday and, um, you know, the the fact that Halloween is such a candy-oriented holiday made it a good point to highlight. But really, it sheds light on things that are happening year-round in the maquiladoras in Mexico. There's virtually no infrastructure there to take care of workers. There is very little environmental protection, very little regulatory protection for labor conditions there, and workers are routinely mistreated. And the sad part is that a lot of these maquilas are controlled by U.S.-based or North American-based multinational companies that supply to U.S. markets. And this is really the price of cheap labor. And um, I'd just like everyone to think about that this Halloween. Don't mean to, you know, be a wet towel or anything. Um, you know, by all means, enjoy your trick or treat. But next time you bite into one of those mallow creams, just remember, you know, that uh, some uh, truly real life horrors went into the making of that candy. So just letting you know. <laughs> Speaking of scary, this week the internet got a little bit of an inside look or, well, an inside listen to what workers around the country deal with when they're trying to form a union. Um, An audio clip was uploaded to SoundCloud by organizers from Teamsters Local 728, which I should note you hear about on this podcast a lot because the organizers are very, very good at reaching out and letting us know what kind of fun things they have going on in their neck of the woods, which happens to be Georgia. So this is from a captive audience meeting at Iron Mountain, which is apparently a nationwide company that does what it calls records management, which appears to include destroying your documents that you don't want people to be able to find, things like shredding, but also things like scanning and whatever. So truck drivers at this company wanted to join the Teamsters, and this recording was snuck out of one of the captive audience meetings that they were pushed into. So for those who don't know, captive audience meetings are an employer's legal right When the workers want to join a union, the 
boss basically has the right to bring you into a room, force you to sit down, and listen to anti-union propaganda for as basically as long as they want. So it's not legally coercion, but it's right. just about at the edge there. And many court decisions have upheld in recent years the company's right to basically, quote-unquote, as the guy says in this recording that you will hear, educate you. Um, we'll put a link to the whole recording up on the Descent website. There's also Gawker, I believe, has nicely transcribed it. They've also got a few other clips worth listening to on their SoundCloud channel. But here's just a tiny selection of what those workers had to listen to. So you got to really think about what do you want out of this? What are you trying to get out of this that you're not getting from us? Okay, that's the key. Okay, and we're going to educate you on what what you will and what you will not receive. Okay, and we're going to do it, and we're going to do it in a professional manner. We're going to do it without intimidation, but we have the right to educate you, and we're going to exercise that right. Okay, so we're going to have people coming in for the next, you know, for the next month or so. A lot of new faces are going to be coming in. We're going to be talking about it. Okay, we're going to be educating. We're going to drive the message home. All right. So I just wanted to point out that if you listen closely uh, to the whole recording, you can actually hear the manager at one point telling the workers uh, sort of reassuringly with that sort of, you know, scary kind of intimidating uh, reassurance. um, No one in this room has more union experience than me. And that really underscores for me kind of the the sort of icky blend of uh, paternalism and intimidation that these captive meetings really entail. So, you know, at that point, one worker actually objects and says, actually, I was was in a union for five years at my previous workplace. And, you know, they they did some good stuff for us. They helped us, uh, you know, hold on to my job. And the, the manager actually says at that point, well, shame on the company, but we don't do that here. And so it's just really odd to think that, you know, workers were, were in this room and they were supposed to be sympathetic to this manager who was actually telling them that I am actively trying to prevent you from unionizing and that's a good thing for you. You should actually be thankful. So that's the kind of warped logic. But, you know, just does with forced confessions and other things that happen <laughs> in, in insulated rooms, you know, it's very easy for the sort of mentality of people to get kind of warped uh, when they're cut off, not allowed to communicate with each other, and subjected to uh, relentless propaganda. So um, those are the kinds of uh, sort of psyops, kind of mind games that are going on, uh, probably in a warehouse near you. Yeah, speaking of union busting, um, this week we also learned a little bit more about the man who is about to lose the election for New York City mayor, Joe LaHoda, who, having been a deputy mayor under Rudy Giuliani, spent some time working for Cablevision in Madison Square Garden And in addition to lobbying for the garden's huge tax exemption, fought an organizing drive by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. So who knows? Quite a track record. Who knows who was in in, uh, some of those captive audience meetings? They were trying to sign up hundreds of technicians. And uh, Rick Friedel from the union told the New York Times Loda was, quote, part of a management team that were ruthless. And that in 2002, of course because this is what happens when workers try to organize when they're not being forced into closed rooms with bullies, they get fired. Loda announced two rounds of job cuts, getting rid of about 
150 workers, which was 25% of the workforce at the division of Cablevision that he was in charge of, which was called Lightpath. But it's cool, guys, because it fueled an 89% jump in cash flow. Weirdly, getting rid of people who do the work brings in the profits. Of course, he said that the layoffs had nothing to do with the organizing campaign and were driven by the company's, quote, anemic performance that year. But, of course, the union disagrees. Fidel said... It sent a very clear message. We can get rid of 70 people just like that. And he said it succeeded. The technicians feared that they too could lose their jobs, and the union ended up giving up. And uh, the next news item is actually taking place across the Atlantic. Um, There is actually an education strike going on across the United Kingdom this week. And it's actually a remarkable effort that links together university lecturers and administrative staff. And it's the first ever national strike over pay in about seven years uh, in Britain. And actually, I mean, just the fact that they had two within seven years is actually kind of impressive to me. I can't remember (laughs) any time in recent memory when there was a nationwide higher education strike in the United States. Um, But anyway, um, so good on them. Uh, But, uh, you know, they were covering it in The Guardian, and they actually ran a bunch of testimonials from university workers, and I thought um, it was actually uh, pretty interesting the way they've managed to sort of message the solidarity theme behind the campaign. This isn't just about lectures. It's not just about um, academics organizing, and it's not just about uh, campus staff organizing. It's about everyone together seeing the academy as an institution that operates as sort of an ecosystem. And, um, you know, if more workplaces took an integrated approach like that, we'd probably see some innovations. We'd probably see a lot of progress, I think, uh, in the labor movement as a whole. But uh, Freya Peters, uh, an administrator for a research center at the University of Manchester, she actually said something pretty interesting in her testimonial. She said, it's easy to conceive of universities as sheltered places, the so-called ivory towers cliche, but This image obscures the cleaners, porters, administrators, security guards, technicians, caterers, and myriad other staff who comprise the majority, helping to maintain world-class institutions. And then she goes on to talk about how the recent pay negotiations have been unsatisfactory because even though they superficially offer a 1% pay rise, uh, that's actually, in effect, a cut due to uh, inflation that is close to 3%. So basically, you know, this is just another way for workers to link arms and, and say, you know, stop screwing all of us collectively, no matter what our job description is. And I think that's a pretty useful message. And hopefully it'll, it'll resonate on this side of the Atlantic for a change. So in addition to this week being Halloween, it was also the anniversary of Hurricane Sandy here in New York. And when Michelle and I were talking this week about what we were going to cover on the podcast, I said, you know, I was writing this really large piece on Hurricane Sandy, and I haven't really been paying attention to labor stories. And Michelle pointed out that, of course, the story of Sandy is a whole bunch of labor stories. And so with that, we decided that that was going to be the subject of our discussion today. So, Michelle, you wrote a couple of pieces right after the storm about, specifically, I'm thinking about the piece that you wrote about um, Con Edison workers and other union workers who were involved in the recovery, even as they were struggling to, in many cases, get their own homes up and running. 
Yeah, um, the Con Edison workers um, actually did something pretty important in the wake of the storm, which is, you know, while they certainly stepped up and um, did their best to get the repairs online, they held Con Edison accountable. And this is really important, I think, because it came at a time when everyone was just extremely frustrated mm-hmm. with the botched response and the total lack of, well, the, the infrastructural deficits that the impact of Sandy really exposed in the wake of the storm. You know, there were down power lines everywhere. Um, whole swaths of communities were left without power. There were serious, you know, water, electrical, heating problems for months thereafter, especially in public housing. Um, all sorts of things were happening, and um, people very easily could have turned against the workers, could have turned against um, unions, and could have said, you know, blamed the workers, essentially, for yeah. failing to maintain the system. And um, the Con Ed workers, you know, pretty valiantly said, uh, you know, first of all, we're here to do our job, and, and we're doing that as best as we can. And if there are problems, um, you know, really, you should turn your eyes towards the corporate management that has systematically disinvested, and also the government officials who have been disinvesting for years mm-hmm. from a lot of these, um, you know, these broader systems that are supposed to be there to protect us in times of crisis. And if you can remember, just a few short years ago, uh, Con Ed workers were involved in a huge labor dispute mm-hmm. uh, right here in the heart of the city. Yeah. In that, the hottest part of the summer, too. Yeah, during the hottest part of the summer, uh, the contract negotiations froze up. Um, everything went to a standstill. Uh, it didn't get to a strike, but, uh, you know, that was threatened. And so there's just a lot of brinksmanship. And um, uh, sadly, you know, that's what it's come to. And I think it's times like Sandy that people realize, you know, emergencies happen. Um, People need to take disaster preparedness seriously, but there also needs to be accountability for the people whose central responsibility it is to determine the policies um, and the corporate practices that that determine how safely things operate on a day-to-day basis. And, um, you know, it, it it should take a crisis to expose those types of failures on the corporate level. And if we don't do that, then uh, we we run the hazard of um, people actually blaming the people who are, you know, least to blame, which right. is the workers doing the frontline work. Yeah. You had union members out there who were, you know, their, their own homes were flooded while right. they were out there working, you know, round-the-clock shifts. Um, it's it's easy for everyone to get frustrated when no one has power, but um, you know uh, it's also important to remember um, when workers don't have power, everybody gets screwed. So. Yeah, it was a very. There were a lot of these conversations, I think, around some of the power companies, around Cuomo wanting to privatize the one remaining uh, right. public utility in the state. Because privatization that always helps. That with definitely helps. Let me tell you, I could talk about for three hours about how terrible Con Ed has been. As from a consumer end, and some of those things actually connect back to that labor. Uh, it did end in a lockout, didn't it? Yeah, it they did. They were locked out for a while. In any case, um, we could talk about this for days, but it's really worth noting, I think, in another case that actually there was a lot of credit given, I think, to the MTA for getting back up and running very quickly, and that actually spurred the aforementioned Joe Lahota, who was in charge of the MTA at the time, into running for mayor. Well, you know. Right. But at the moment that there people were pretty universally praising the way the MTA got back up and running, the job that TWU workers did, and also the way that, you know, they were able to 
put aside some of their own conflicts with Mr. Loda. And, uh, right. and it's funny that he's done. actually trying to, um, you know, spin the uh, post-Sandy disaster response as one of his, like, sort of crown jewels of yeah. his administration with the MTA. You know, I mean, the, the <laughs> fact that he's taking an outsized amount of credit for something that was an effort that was largely shepherded by, you know, workers on the ground, mm-hmm. I think, is, uh, you know, I, I certainly didn't see him, you know, knee-deep in flood water with, you know, his uh, jeans rolled up. And, I mean, well, they're still doing heavy repair work on some of these subway tunnels even now, that the amount of damage that happened the speed with which they were able to get things up and running again really was pretty impressive. And I think a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And we just, probably can't mention enough right. the work that the transit workers did and, in that space. I mean, transit um, is very much a working class issue throughout the city in many different ways mm-hmm. because so many of the city's workers depend on their daily commute to mm-hmm. get around. Um, I was just looking up statistics on this and uh, three quarters of a million New Yorkers uh, travel more than an hour each way to work. Yeah. Um, and two thirds of these earn less than $35,000 a year. So for, you know, low-income people, you know, city bike is just not going to cut it. City um, bike isn't in your neighborhood if you're right, low-income people. Right. If you make, make less than $35,000 a year in New York, I can tell you, you are not right. living in a neighborhood that has a city bike station. Plus, when there are gale force winds and um, sewers <laughs> are flooding, uh-huh. you know, it's not, it's not, I wouldn't recommend going out on one of those bikes. Yeah. But, um, but you know, <laughs> no. that being said, um, the subway infrastructure is, um, you know, while they did make a, a you know a, a pretty brave attempt to get everything back up and running it really did also expose how little of the much needed investment um, has taken place over the past few years in terms of um, making it work for working people in New York yeah and of course one of the other issues that we probably don't talk about enough is that a lot of the recovery work the sort of immediate aftermath of like dragging soaking mattresses and destroyed things out of people's homes was being done by immigrant day laborers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think there's a report that's coming out soon. There is, yes. We have just found out that uh, this Sunday, um, the day laborers are having a day of health, safety, and action one year after Sandy that will include a march from City Hall to the Jacob Javits Federal Building at 26 Federal Plaza. Um, And the new report is from Professor Hector uh, Cordero Guzman of Burke College about the role that the day laborers played in the recovery. So we look forward to having more details on this. But there was a piece that I was reading this week at Al Jazeera America an opinion piece that was written by people from a worker center that works with immigrant day laborers talking about the conditions that a lot of these people faced while doing this work with very little health and safety protections, often in quite unsafe conditions. We were talking about mold. We're talking about God knows what was in some of this water. I mean, if you were dragging things out of some place that was flooded with water from the Gowanus. That's one of the most polluted bodies of water in this country. Yeah. When um, it's not being churned up by a massive storm. Ugh, so. Yeah, it's it's truly horrifying. And I think that um, it's important to remember that this is a chronic problem, even though mm-hmm. it really gets punctuated in times of emergency. I mean, just reading about the struggles that day laborers encounter um, when they're helping with the Sandy recovery is very much, for me, sort of shades of um, post-September 11th, mm-hmm. the cleanup that was going on um, in downtown Manhattan around the World Trade Center area. So many of those workers were not adequately or justly compensated or even recognized for the 
work they were doing because they were working, you know, maybe off the books. Um, their hours weren't being clocked properly. They were working sort of under the table. Many of them were undocumented. So um, if, if a crisis is, is good for anything, it's that it highlights sort of the, the underlying day-to-day crises that are unfolding in these yeah. people's lives. And um, hopefully there, there, there could be legislation pending that will enhance workplace safety for New York workers, mm-hmm. including day laborers. But what they really need is, you know, sustained um, organizing, uh, adequate representation in the workplace and fair work rules, as well as, you know, just recognition for the labor that they put in yeah. um, if these workers are undocumented or, or even if they, they are, um, you know, authorized workers, but, you know, they're just uh, not uh, recognized properly for the work that they do. Um, yeah. There's very little way for them to have power in the workplace, whether there is a disaster and they're really, really needed more than ever, or whether they're just doing their everyday job and trying to make a living like the rest of us. And again, one of the things about Sandy is that in the first wave, sorry for using that word, the disaster hit pretty indiscriminately, right? It took out power in the lower half of Manhattan. It destroyed very expensive vacation homes that were along the water, as well as really, you know, not well-built homes that were some of the cheapest in the city that were the only places where a lot of these low-income workers are able to afford to live. And so the recovery has really exacerbated. This is, I mean, it's almost become a cliche to say, but I don't think that I can say it often enough. It's really exacerbated the inequalities that already existed in these areas, right? The people who can afford to rebuild their house and rebuild it to flood standards and all of that are the people who have money, people who have less money or less able to get that. And also access to aid is very hard to get, particularly for, again, immigrant workers who don't have access to FEMA aid. And thus, as people told me, getting a FEMA number when you applied for aid with FEMA was often a prerequisite for getting other forms of aid from private companies and from these NGOs that, while we're talking about the NGOs, had to be sort of bullied by the attorney general to loosen their purse strings and spend some of that money that they were they had been raking in the donations for months. Mm-hmm. And a lot of immigrants who do come forward for sort of the very, very basic emergency assistance that, you know, federal authorities are, are pretty much obligated to give, you know, the, they wouldn't check your ID for you know, at, at an emergency shelter or something like that. Right. But, you know, once you get into, um, you know, the, the really luxury stuff, like maybe, you know, wanting Having to repair your house, <laughs> yeah, yeah um, that's when things get a little bit hairy. So, um, the way the aid system is, is stratified um, really says a lot about uh, you know how people's lives are essentially valued. Even when uh, something like Sandy hits and it's supposedly the great equalizer, the right. inequalities crop up right. pretty ferociously um, in the storm's aftermath. And, and I think you actually see that playing out in the physical structure of the recovery itself. I mean, mm-hmm. you have these you know grand infrastructure plans that are supposed to make the city more resilient, but in many cases they're, they're basically just sort of building you know, um, fancy flood walls around private property and and things like that. You know, we're going to have a city of of little private fiefdoms where people can afford to build, you know, a stormproof bubble immediately around their penthouse. But, you know, sadly, everyone else gets left behind. And, you know, I mean, um, if if there was supposed to be anything good coming out of something like Sandy, it was that people would realize that we're all in this together. But Mm -hmm. sadly, um, it's just kind of underscoring some of the inequities that... um, 
um, that sadly tend to surface, sorry, yep. pun intended, um, uh, you know, in, in the storm's wake, even when everyone is, is overall um, more miserable. So. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to a family out in Staten Island who the husband did construction work. He had had his own tools and his own small business doing work for private homeowners, you know, small businesses doing this work independently. And his wife did domestic work. So now she has less work because some of the people that she cleaned homes for have not moved back. She's only working like three days a week now when she had been working five And on the other hand, her husband lost all his tools. They were in the garage, which is, of course, the first floor of their house in a part of Staten Island that pretty much completely flooded, and they lost everything. And he's not able to get aid to replace those tools, so he had to take a job working for somebody else. He's less able to be independent, and also he's making less money once again, despite the fact that there are all these construction projects going up everywhere, it seems, um, access to the work when you can get it as one issue and then the conditions of the work like we were just talking about for another one. Right. And the more desperate workers are, the more they're willing to work at substandard conditions right. um, in order to just to get a paycheck. And, um, you know, sadly, Sandy is, is one example of an instance in which during times of crisis when everyone is desperate, you know, the people who are the most desperate are working people. Right. And, you know, this on a macro level, this, this also is, is sort of a sad, maybe a sad foreshadowing of um, things that will only get worse um, as climate change aggravates um, and even cities like New York that are supposed to be pretty resilient um, end up, you know, suffering and, and the poor in New York end up suffering disproportionately. So you can expect more Sandy Lake disasters in the future, very likely. Yeah. And, um, you know, while everyone thinks that lessons were learned this time around, uh, I don't know, wait until the next storm hits, right? Yeah, so. I mean, I really don't think that a lot of lessons were learned this time around, right? We had a lot of sort of laudatory stories about the wonderful job that volunteers did or the wonderful job we were talking Michelle sent me these stories of a couple of home care workers who took their clients into their homes this one woman Minnie Lasper took her 77 year old client into her own home which if you are aware home care workers make you know what I don't know what the average New York state is I know it's something like $10 an hour. Her home probably didn't have a spare bedroom to put her client in. Right. And 20K just a year, you, you might yeah. not even have a bedroom yourself in your right. apartment. So. Um, so she was taking care of her client in her own home, having evacuated her herself through the storm with no help. Another woman went with her client and her client's three neighbors from the 17th floor of their apartment building to a shelter where they all stayed together for 10 days. And it's not like they could just hop in a cab, mind you. Right. I mean, this probably, I, I assume it involves the, the sort of actual physically moving someone's body who is yeah, incapacitated. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is serious physical labor. Right. I, mean, I mean, right, people who are relying on personal care workers are usually people who are not as able to move around by themselves, people who either have severe physical disabilities or severe health issues that prevent them from being able to do basic tasks without the aid of another person. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I spoke to a woman who worked at an um, adult care home in Coney Island who they, again, had to evacuate all of these patients who are, this is a facility for people with mental health issues, people who their medicine was washed away when the flood came in and they had to evacuate these people, take them. They ended up staying in a school for a while that was being used as a shelter. Um, yeah, it's, it's, 
we can tell these stories and be really amazed at the things that people can and will do for each other. And that's, I think, a, a lesson worth learning. But also what's worth pointing out is that there was very, very little actual infrastructure to do this. And so volunteers had to sort of do superhuman feats because there was nothing else there. Right. And I think, um, you know, sadly, you know, it's it's sort of a basic human impulse to want to vaunt these sort of everyday heroes who go out on a limb right. and save their and fellow we man. Should. And yes. I mean, they were amazing in their way underpaid. Right. Get them a raise. But you know what? I, I really wish uh, that, you know, life could be a little bit more boring um, when, when oh, natural right? disasters hit because, you know, I, I would rather actually rather take functioning government services yeah. over, um, yeah. you know, the, the, the hero who manages to spring up right at the right moment, you know, so because yeah. uh, not everybody has that. Yeah. <laughs> One of the unions that I've talked about a lot on this podcast, probably because I got to know them through covering the aftermath of Sandy, is, of course, the New York State Nurses Association. So way back last winter, I spoke with Judy Sheridan Gonzalez, who is now the president of NYSNA. Congratulations. They just had their convention. And we talked about the work that she had done literally right after Sandia's recovery work and also the political organizing that they and other groups from around the city were doing around the recovery. And, you know, she talked about the way that volunteers work and could be used as an excuse sort of not to invest in these structures that should do it. She compared it to uh, sitting at a pool and, and there's a lifeguard on duty, but somebody's drowning and the lifeguard's not helping them. Well, you jump in and you save the person, but how long are you going to keep doing that if the lifeguard is not doing their job? What do you, you know, don't you at some point say, hey, lifeguard, we're paying you for this. <laughs> but then you don't get a cool story afterwards. <sighs> right? Yeah. No, but it's it's really, you know, right. We are paying for these systems to exist. We pay taxes. And that they really did fail in many, many ways after the storm. And, of course, talking to nurses who work in healthcare, they immediately connect the failures of hospitals to prepare adequately or to evacuate ahead of time. Again, hospitals. The one story that got around a lot was nurses having to carry babies in incubators down the stairs with no power. And so, you know, so Nisna, together with a bunch of different groups, formed the Alliance for a Just Rebuilding, which is pushing to actually make sure that these structures work the next time around. And so we talked about this sort of lack of preparation for the storm, and she really, she really chalked it up to what she called the neoliberal approach to work, which is essentially that they don't want to pay anybody for, quote unquote, non-productive time, right? So in the hospital, that means less training, less active learning, less drills for things like having to evacuate in the middle of a storm. And instead that they're just crunched constantly with, quote unquote, productivity requirements, which when you start thinking about productivity requirements in terms of like being a patient in a hospital, that's a little creepy. But so... She pointed out also that, like, relying on volunteers is relying on these same people who are stressed to the hilt at work, right? She is a nurse who lives in the Bronx, who went to the Rockaways and was climbing stairs in public housing and checking on people and trying to get them basic medical care that in many cases they weren't getting in the first place because they were uninsured and the healthcare situation in the Rockaways I've talked about before on this podcast. There's one functioning hospital and they're trying to close it. But she's also a full-time emergency room nurse in the Bronx and getting out to do this volunteer work when your job is also, you know, caring for people, saving people's lives. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, it's it's it sort of shows how impossible it could be to assume that volunteers can just fill in the gaps, mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. matter how much wonderful work those volunteers did. Right. I mean, uh, the the story of poverty should not be oh, it's great when people overcome it. It should be uh, let's abolish poverty. Right. right? So. right. so yeah. But all that said, I do want to leave this discussion with a clip from Judy herself talking about some of the positives that came out of Nisna's work around the storm. So here's Judy Sheridan Gonzalez of Nisna talking about her experience after Sandy. Um, and I think we found with the food distribution, you know, like people providing free food, and then there was pressure to shut down the free food, uh, the soup kitchens, because it was hurting, hurting business. You know, and it, well, you know, and then the businesses have to survive, right? They survive by selling food, like even little mom and pop, you know, delis or whatever, right? Yeah. And if somebody's giving free food, then your business is going to do well. You know, that's weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's all these weird sort of things that happen as a result of all this. Yeah. So, you know, and you, and you have to start taking a look at the bigger picture because how do you make sense of that? How do you how do you deal with that contradiction of a little mom and pop business that survives by selling little food in their little deli, and then you know a block away there's you know a soup kitchen providing food. Yeah. What do you what do you say about that? It's created so many questions in people's minds about how things should be. I think that's an opportunity, of course, for all of us to organize around that. Yeah, because most people don't think about what kind of society they want, right? So. You know, this, this disaster has really caused people to, to come face to face with looking at these contradictions. You know, challenge people's previous thinking. It's really yeah, so, you know, it, it, the, the good thing about it is, is that it, um, it got our members to feel that their organization, their union, yeah. is more than just negotiate contracts. Yeah, it's really showing people um, which which institutions get things done in the crisis, right, and what why they matter beyond just... Also, also just to elevate people's level of thinking about what a union is supposed to do, yeah. you know, beyond, beyond the very narrow... Not that the workplace needs are not critical, but they are, and that's why people join the union. Right. But that what, what is the union supposed to be, you know, about? What does it mean? You know, this is embracing beyond its own members. Because most people see unions as, as, most union members see their union as a kind of service providing agency. You know, they don't see it as a tool that they can use to transform, you know, the world in some way or another. Whether the world is a tiny little workplace or something bigger than that. And we're trying to, we're trying to share with people that we think that the union can be a whole lot more than, than that. And this is one way in which we're able to, to do that. So this brings us to the time in the podcast where we say, ARG! I wish I had written that. Yes, but I'm giving a special pirate ARG, you know, to celebrate Halloween. So, ARG! Yes. Excellent. So, Michelle, what do you wish? Um, that yes. You so had? now for my my uh, you know to segue from the uh, the pirate arg to um, my screed on on uh, corporate welfare, um, uh, McDonald's, who are in a sense pirates themselves in the sense that they're looting uh, the public trust. Um, there's a great piece in the Guardian on October 30th by um, uh, Sadib Walsh 
And she writes about the irony of uh, McDonald's encouraging its workers to sign up for food stamps as sort of their standard um, worker hotline advice. Um, And so McDonald's is saying, you know, hey, you're having trouble, um, you know, feeding your kids? Well, there's this great government program that's right there for you. And poor people like you qualify for food stamps. And so... um, They encourage them to get on SNAP benefits. Um, There's nothing inherently wrong with accessing government entitlements that you deserve and that you qualify for. I just want to underscore that. What is troubling, as Sidi Walsh points out very eloquently, uh, is that, one, uh, it's a huge, massive multinational corporation that is essentially telling its poorest workers that um, the government is the one that's responsible for making sure that they can feed their kids. That's number one. Number two is that, well, this is McDonald's and they profit massively from, um, you know, feeding poor people really, really cheap, unhealthy food. So that underscores the irony of how this sort of closed, self-contained, self-perpetuating system of um, cheating the poor is actually, you know, becomes a great profit generator for McDonald's. And three, uh, Walsh points out, perhaps I'm being unreasonable, but it seems to me that when Republicans are so vocal about how much they hate government programs like um, SNAP benefits or food stamps and Medicaid, and indeed anything that makes life a little more feasible for low-income or no-income Americans, they should surely be able to work up a small sweat at such a blatant example of the system being gamed, namely McDonald's taking advantage of this program while refusing to pay its workers a living wage. And yet, and yet, just last month, Walsh continues, congressional Republicans voted unanimously to cut $39 billion from the food stamp program. And surely, uh, I don't have to waste words here outlining their opposition to any form of government-subsidized health care. So just some food for thought. (laughs) While uh, workers starve in the process of making cheap food for everyone, um, McDonald's is fattening its corporate profits. The GOP is uh, essentially getting away with gutting government programs that make up our tattered safety net. And in the end, workers don't benefit adequately in the way that they deserve from either the government subsidy or from the companies that should be paying them a living wage in the, wor- in the first place for a very tough, arduous, and um, you know poorly remunerated job. So obviously, Um, People who qualify for government benefits should get them, but uh, many of them should not be in a position where they need to qualify for government subsidies in the first place when they're actually being robbed by their employer every single day. And it's worth noting that as you are listening to this on Friday, November 1st, the expansion of the food stamp program that was part of the post-economic crisis, you remember that thing, right? Stimulus bill is expiring, so food stamps are being cut even without the GOP having to make a special effort to do so. The default is just further impoverishment. Unless the government takes special action to intervene, things will revert back to an ever more regressive stance. Right. So this week, I well, many weeks we've talked on this show about the bankruptcy proceedings going on in Detroit. And... The piece that I wish I'd written this week focuses on some of those retired workers who are going to be in deep trouble if 
the bankruptcy goes forward and their pensions are slashed. Alan Pike at Think Progress wrote a piece. It's titled, We've Already Sacrificed. Detroit Retirees Speak Out on Bankruptcy. The thing that really got me was he spoke to a retired firefighter who is just 34 years old and had been a firefighter for about 12 years when a building collapsed on him. He is now paralyzed from the chest down. So his health care plan is about to go. His pension might be going. And, oh yeah, public safety employees don't actually get Social Security. So his pension gone. He's 34. He has every expectation of living quite a bit longer, despite the fact that he is, you know, not in a physical condition to take a lot of jobs. He's really going to be... Because one thing that really does do a number on your body is rescuing people from burning buildings all day. Uh, yeah. that'll, that'll, that'll do a number on you. Yeah. He makes the point in the, the piece that a comparable health care plan to what he has now would cost about $15,000 a year. Um, this really isn't an option for a guy who needs constant care, physical therapy. His doctor bills that would cost some $3,000 a week or more out of pocket if he was paying for them. And this is really the problem that comes with creating a system where we assume that people who do dangerous jobs in the public interest, like being a firefighter, that they'll be taken care of. And yet, when it comes to budget crises, usually manufactured, self-created budget crises, they just become a line to cut in the budget. Not a person, not a human with a family, with a life. Just another line to cut in the budget. So I, I sort of hate to leave people with depressing stories like that. It's worth saying that the bankruptcy proceedings are still, they're being fought out in court, that we, as I talked about on the show recently, the workers are fighting, unions have sued. It seems that the bankruptcy judge is not overly fond of Detroit's emergency manager, so we mm -hmm. shall see how all this plays out. The emergency manager who is a bankruptcy lawyer? Right, yes, the emergency manager who is a bankruptcy lawyer. Um, weird how that works. Yeah. So all is not completely lost, but it is worth paying attention to. It's worth going back to, and it's worth, once again, as we conclude this ever-so-cheery episode of Belabored, thinking about once again, the people who do the work that allows us to live our lives right. in relative safety and comfort, right. how we treat and value them. Yeah. I mean, just think about it. This guy was a hero for a living, right? I mean, his job was to rescue people from fires. Right. If he had done that in the wake of uh, Superstorm Sandy, he would be on the evening news. Like, what a great guy this is. What a hero, if he was right? Um, but if he's a public servant who, you know, thanklessly earns, um, you know, inadequate wages and then ends up getting screwed in retirement, well, screw him, you know. And not just sacrifice. retirement. Not, I mean, this is not his choice to retire. Right. It's, it's, he can't work currently because a building fell on him. It's a wonderful piece. You should read it, even though it'll probably make you cry like it made me. And it will, once again, make you think about how we value the people who do some of the most important work in our society. So on that cheery note, <laughs> we leave you. Indeed. Thank you for listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. We will be back next week, and hopefully we will find something to be cheerful about. Maybe? Maybe? Eh, whatever. Well, there, there are plenty. There's plenty more grist for the mill, but that's what makes this fun. 
Thanks for listening. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin, the fact, hell no, we can't go. That's the sign.